It's Friday, the 23rd of June, 1972. It's an unseasonably cool afternoon in Washington, DC, but the mood inside the White House is fiery. President Richard Nixon and his chief of staff, Bob Haldeman, are in the midst of a heated discussion about what to do with an inconvenient story that's been doing the rounds in the papers. The previous weekend, five men had been arrested at the Democratic National Committee headquarters in Washington's Watergate Hotel. This may not have been such a problem, were it not for the fact that one or two of the men arrested were rumoured to be linked to top government officials perhaps even the president himself. Nixon had publicly dismissed the incident as a third-rate burglary, but privately, he was panicking. 1972 was an election year, and with the Vietnam War still raging, and the economy faltering, Nixon knew that being linked to an incident such as this could seriously damage his re-election chances. The FBI were probing into the case, and Nixon was getting uncomfortable. Holderman recommends telling the FBI to, quote, stay the hell out of it. He wants to kill the investigation before it even begins, and suggests that career-driven FBI men, such as its deputy chief, Mark Felt will bow to pressure from the presidency. Nixon likes what he hears. Haldeman thinks just like he does. He's smart, he's tough, and he never gives an inch to the Democrats and their allies in the media. By the end of the meeting, the plan is decided. The president will secretly, but aggressively, discourage the FBI and any other authorities from investigating the break-in at the Watergate Hotel. One of the most infamous cover-ups in history had begun. Hello and welcome back to the Ministry of History podcast. I'm here with the first episode of series two, which is all about historical scandals. For the next few weeks, I'm going to be bringing you stories of scandals that have shocked the world, brought governments to the brink, ruined reputations and careers. And on that note, we're starting off with a big one. In this episode, we're going to be talking about the infamous Watergate scandal. Now, the stated aim of the Ministry of History is to focus on lesser known stories and people. I'm not going to pretend that Watergate is a lesser known story, but the beauty of running my own blog and podcast is that I'm my own editor. I can cover what I want. And I wanted to cover Watergate because it genuinely fascinates me it encompasses so many factors. Spiteful and delusional though he was, Richard Nixon was actually a fairly popular president. 
And yet, he was prepared to risk everything for the sake of digging up some dirt on his enemies, snatching defeat from the jaws of victory in the process. In fact, he didn't even snatch defeat from the jaws of victory. He already had the victory and he threw it all away. It's easy to say things in hindsight, of course, but one of the things that is so striking about the Watergate scandal is how pointless it all was. Nixon was going to win the 1972 election easily. So why did he feel a need to resort to dirty tricks and deception? As we're going to discuss, I think it has a lot to do with his character and with his life experiences before he became president. Presidents are so powerful, so seemingly invincible, that it's sometimes difficult to remember that they are human too. I suppose that's what fascinates me so much about the Watergate scandal. It's a tale of crime and mystery for sure, but it's also a story of personal tragedy on the part of Richard Nixon. Before we get into all of that, I need to ask you again to leave a review. I am sorry I have to keep asking, but it really is one of the best ways to get the pod to grow. If you have a spare moment, please leave a review for the podcast. And if enough of you do so, I promise I won't bother you anymore about it. In fact, I'll just make it easy for you. Just hit that five star button and don't even think about it again. I might also be a bit cheeky and point you towards my donation page on the Buy Me A Coffee website. I've said before, I don't have delusions of becoming fabulously wealthy by doing this blog and podcast, but the equipment and the overheads do cost money. And like anyone else, I need to pay for costs and make sure that this little project is sustainable in the long term. Follow the Buy Me A Coffee link in the description of this podcast and donate whatever you feel like. Any donation really would be hugely appreciated. Don't forget as well to check out the blog and follow me on Twitter at Ministry History, all one word, no of in the middle. The blog, by the way, is the Ministry of History on Google and it's actually the top result. Now then, let's get on with the story. What I don't want to do is just give you a boring list of dates and incidents. No. What I want to try and do is explore the causes behind the scandal. In particular, I want to explore Richard Nixon's motivations for acting the way he did. Like I said, the whole thing does seem so pointless at first glance, and I think I'd be doing you a disservice if I didn't try to explore the reasons for Watergate happening in the first place. I believe that to understand the origins of the scandal, we must first understand Nixon the man and his professional life before he won the presidency. Richard Milhouse Nixon was born on the 9th of January, 1913, 
to a family of Quakers in California. The family were poor, and young Richard generally had an unhappy childhood. His father, a shopkeeper, was an austere man who would sometimes hit his children, and tragedy twice struck the family before Richard turned 20. Firstly, his younger brother, Arthur Nixon, died in 1925 at the age of seven, and then his older brother, Harold Nixon, died in 1933 at the age of 24. His impoverished and sometimes troubled upbringing forged Richard Nixon's personality in a number of ways. Firstly, he adored his mother, Hannah Nixon, who showered her surviving children with love and attention. Nixon would remain devoted to her even after she died in the 1960s, and as he gave a speech to AIDS before he eventually resigned the presidency, he tearfully referred to his mother as a saint. The second thing to say about Nixon as a child and young man is that he was painfully shy and introverted and was generally considered a bit weird by his peers. Even though he rose to the presidency, Nixon remained intensely shy in private. In his own words, he was an introvert in an extrovert's job. Thirdly, the young Richard Nixon was a ferociously hard worker, throwing himself into his studies and earning a scholarship from Harvard University. Unfortunately, his family couldn't afford the travel fee to the East Coast, nor could they afford the living expenses at Harvard, so Richard was forced to settle for studying at a less prestigious local college. He managed to secure a place at law school in North Carolina in 1934, by which time he had saved enough money to make the move to the East Coast. He returned to California as a qualified lawyer, and soon after he met an amateur actress named Thelma Ryan, who was better known as Pat. Richard Nixon and Pat married in 1940, and they had two daughters together. Having served in the US Navy in the Second World War, Richard Nixon decided to embark on a career in politics. And it's here, in this fledgling political career, that we start to see some more character traits of his. The first is his incredible ambition, which for the rest of his life would provide the counterbalance to his natural shyness. It was his ambition alone that forced him to overcome that shyness. That ambition not only triumphed over his shyness, but also over his sense of morality. In his first campaign for Congress in 1946, Nixon aggressively and unfairly maligned his Democrat opponent as a communist sympathizer, which was no small charge in 1940s America, in an effort to gain votes, and he repeated the trick when he ran for Senate in 1950. His opponent in that Senate race, Helen Gehagen Douglas, was one of only nine female US representatives at the time, and Nixon employed a mix of sexist and communist-baiting rhetoric to secure his victory. 
His actions in 1950 earned him the nickname Tricky Dicky, and that nickname would follow him for the rest of his life. But of course, it was a nickname he had well earned, and what would also follow him was his willingness to bend the rules as far as he could in order to secure victories for himself. The other character trait that emerges in Richard Nixon's early political career is his feeling that he was an outsider. Well, in truth, Nixon had always felt himself to be an outsider, but the feeling was exacerbated when he arrived in Washington and struggled to fit in with people who had very little in common with him. To say that Richard Nixon had a chip on his shoulder would be to massively understate it. Richard Nixon absolutely hated the landed Eastern establishment who dominated Washington politics, and he despised politicians who came from wealthy backgrounds. For better, and as we've seen, for worse, Nixon had made it to Washington through hard graft, and he had very little time for people who had waltzed into politics on the back of family money. Richard Nixon's star rose fast, and his fierce anti-communist stance, coupled with his obvious intelligence and drive, earned him a place on the Republican presidential ticket in 1952 with Dwight Eisenhower. Nixon served faithfully as Eisenhower's vice president for eight years, and he aimed for the presidency himself in 1960. It was in this election that we see the final morphing of Richard Nixon into the man who orchestrated the Watergate scandal. Nixon's opponent in the 1960 election was John F. Kennedy. Kennedy was everything that Nixon wasn't. He was the charming, handsome, charismatic son of an immensely wealthy Irish Catholic family from Massachusetts. His father, Joe Kennedy Sr., had been the American ambassador to Britain in the 1930s and had coaxed his second son towards a career in politics. Though John Kennedy was certainly hardworking and intelligent in his own right, there's no doubt that his political career had been hugely aided by his father's wealth and connections. So, more than being everything that Richard Nixon wasn't, Kennedy was everything that Richard Nixon hated. And hate is not too strong of a word. Nixon really did come to hate the Kennedys, seeing them as the epitome of the spoiled, entitled establishment. And those feelings were only made stronger by allegations that JFK was tipped over the edge to victory in 1960 by vote tampering. Although there were also allegations that his campaign had fiddled with votes, Richard Nixon would come to believe that he had been robbed of the presidency.
I've given you all of this background because, like I said before, I believe that to understand the Watergate scandal, you must first understand the essence of the man behind it. By the 1960s, Richard Nixon is a man who still has a burning ambition to become president, but he's convinced that he's been robbed of his prize by the Washington establishment. He's decided that if he is to achieve his goal, then his old communist baiting hijinks just aren't going to cut it. Politics is a dirty game, and he's decided he's got to be the dirtiest player of them all. After losing a race to become the governor of his native California in 1962, Richard Nixon spent the rest of the 1960s plotting his political comeback. He secured the Republican presidential nomination again in 1968, and he proved that he had learned his lessons. He deliberately tanked President Lyndon Johnson's peacemaking efforts in Vietnam, fearing that it would benefit his Democrat opponent, Johnson's vice president, Hubert Humphrey. Coupled with his infamous Southern strategy, in which he purposefully exploited the racist sentiments of former Democrat voters in the South, this was enough to finally see Richard Nixon elected president in 1968. Nixon truly saw his victory as a big F.U. to the establishment. Forget the fact that he had been the vice president for eight years. Forget the fact that he had spent the 1960s cozying up to party bigwigs to secure the nomination. In his eyes, he was still the shy, poor boy from California who had taken on the Washington elites and finally won. He was no great fan of the media either, feeling personally wounded when they criticised him. He firmly believed that they had a liberal bias and were out to get him. So, there we have it. That's the scene in 1972. A suspicious president, seeking re-election, convinced that the media is out to get him convinced that the Democrats are going to pull some dirty tricks on him and hell-bent on playing dirtier than the lot of them. This is the context in which we have to understand the Watergate scandal. In 1971, a federal employee named Daniel Ellsberg leaked classified documents that showed that every US president since Dwight Eisenhower had intentionally misled the American public about the Vietnam War and its chances of success. The documents, which were initially published by the New York Times and then serialised by nearly every other paper in the country, were damning for the reputations of each one of those presidents Eisenhower, Kennedy, Johnson and Nixon. 
But true to form, Richard Nixon took it very personally. He was convinced that the newspapers were publishing the documents to ruin his chances in the upcoming 1972 election. Determined to fight back against his perceived enemies, he organised a small task force to take aggressive action. Known as the White House Plumbers, the group's first operation was to break in to Daniel Ellsberg's doctor's office and try and find some damning information on him. But the problem with the plumbers was that they weren't actually that good at their jobs. They failed to find anything particularly damning on Ellsberg and in May of 1972, they broke into the Democratic National Committee headquarters in the Watergate Hotel to steal some documents and install wiretaps. But the wiretaps didn't work properly, so they were forced to repeat the break-in on the night of the 17th of June 1972. It was here, during this break-in, that they were caught and arrested. Investigators were intrigued when they found out that one of the burglars had the phone number of Everett Howard Hunt in their phone book. Hunt was a White House operative involved in Nixon's re-election campaign and the information about his possible involvement in the burglary made it into an article written by Bob Woodward in the front page of the Washington Post on the 20th of June. Three days later, Nixon and Bob Haldeman had the meeting that I referenced at the start of this podcast, the meeting in which they decided that it wouldn't be too difficult to pressure the FBI into halting their investigation. As it turned out, they shouldn't have been so sure. Bob Woodward, the Washington Post writer, had got his information from a source who was very well placed in the FBI. Speculation about possible White House involvement in the burglary was prominent enough for Richard Nixon himself to formally deny the allegations that August. Throughout the summer, the president publicly dismissed the case and he pretended that he wasn't concerned at all about allegations of White House involvement. But in private, he arranged for hush money to be paid to the burglars and followed the latest reports on the case obsessively. The reports were mostly being published by two Washington Post reporters, Bob Woodward and Carl Bernstein. Initially, they weren't even working together and they independently found out that E. Howard Hunt, the White House operative, had indeed been in contact with the burglars and that among the men arrested was James McCord, a former CIA operative who had ties to Richard Nixon. Towards the end of the summer, Woodward and Bernstein's editor, Ben Bradley, suggested that they start working together on the case. On the 15th of September, the five burglars arrested at the Watergate Hotel 
as well as E. Howard Hunt and another White House operative named G. Gordon Liddy, were indicted by a grand jury. Nixon and his aides raced to encourage them to plead guilty and avoid a trial in which some inconvenient information might come out. The trickle of information was starting to seriously worry Richard Nixon, but for the time being, he had absolutely nothing to worry about. In November of 1972, he won re-election in a crushing landslide, absolutely decimating his Democrat opponent, George McGovern. He won 18 million more votes than McGovern, and he won every single state in the Union apart from Massachusetts. And it's not like all of this was unexpected. Sure, the margin of victory wasn't predicted to be quite so large, but Nixon had been well ahead in the polls through the whole of 1972, and he was widely expected to win re-election comfortably. As I've said before, all of this makes the Watergate incident so much harder to understand. Why did Nixon bother to assemble a team of shady fixers? Why was he prepared to resort to such dirty tactics when he had absolutely no need to? Again, that's why I said that to try to understand the Watergate scandal, you must first understand Nixon the man. He simply didn't care what strong position he was in. He was eternally convinced that his enemies in Washington and in the press were out to get him, and he was convinced that he had to fight back. In Nixon's mind, there was no doubt that the Democrats would engage in some sort of shenanigans to derail his campaign, just like they'd done in 1960. In Richard Nixon's mind, all he was doing was fighting fire with fire. Nixon may have won re-election, but his honeymoon period didn't last long. Before he was even inaugurated for the second time, all seven men indicted for the Watergate break-in, that's the five burglars plus E. Howard Hunt and G. Gordon Liddy, had either pled guilty or been convicted. And by now, new details about the case, and more specifically about possible involvement by the White House, were being revealed by a slow but steady trickle of stories published by Bob Woodward and Carl Bernstein in the Washington Post. The White House was exerting huge pressure on the Post to halt its investigation, and Nixon's press officer, Ron Ziegler, repeatedly attacked them as biased, dishonest reporters who had nothing better to do than pursue a personal grudge against the President. But the Washington Post's executive editor, Ben Bradley, was having absolutely none of it. He encouraged his precocious young reporters to keep digging. Woodward and Bernstein were also encouraged by their source in the FBI, 
who was comically codenamed Deep Throat. Remember at the start of this podcast when I described the meeting between Bob Haldeman and Richard Nixon in June of 1972? Remember how Haldeman suggested to Nixon that career-driven FBI men would bow to pressure from the White House? Well, you might have thought it weird at the time that I mentioned one FBI man by name, its deputy director, Mark Felt. Well, now it's time to tell you the reason why I mentioned his name. In 2005, it was revealed that Deep Throat, the source in the FBI who was revealing all this information to Bob Woodward and Carl Bernstein, was none other than Mark Felt himself. The slow trickle of information turned into a deluge when in March of 1973, one of the seven convicted men had a sudden change of heart about cooperating with the investigation. James McCord, the former CIA operative who'd been arrested at the Watergate Hotel, realised that he was probably facing a long prison sentence and he decided that the hush money being organised by the White House wasn't going to make up for it. Just days before sentencing, he submitted a letter to the judge in the case, which told how he and the other defendants had been pressured by the White House into either pleading guilty or committing perjury. Well, that really got people talking. The judge... John Sirica read the letter aloud to an astonished courtroom and he gave the defendants long provisional sentences in the hope that those sentences would pressure them into turning against their former employers. By the end of April, most of Nixon's top aides, including his chief of staff, Bob Haldeman, were forced to resign as their role in the cover-up became clear. Ron Ziegler was forced to extend an apology to Woodward and Bernstein, as he admitted that their reporting had of course been completely accurate. Worse still, as far as Richard Nixon was concerned, a Senate committee was established to investigate the Watergate affair, and his Justice Department was forced to appoint a special prosecutor Archibald Cox to investigate as well. Sitting on that Senate committee was a senator from Tennessee called Howard Baker. Now Baker was just about as Republican as you could get. His father and his father-in-law had been Republican congressmen before him and he was a keen supporter of Richard Nixon. In fact, he had secretly met with Nixon in February to reassure him that any Senate investigation into the Watergate scandal wouldn't find much. Sitting across from Baker at the end of June 1973 was a former White House lawyer named John Dean. 
Dean faced a tough choice when he was hauled before the committee. Should he protect the president and perjure himself? Or should he tell the truth and incriminate the president and indeed incriminate himself in the process? Dean chose the latter option. Nixon had fired him at the end of April, so he was out of a job and aware that he was probably going to prison. So he decided that he had nothing to lose and began to come clean before the Senate committee. He admitted that among other things, he had personally organised the funding and payment of hush money to the Watergate burglars. On the 29th of June, 1973, Howard Baker was getting frustrated with Dean and even more frustrated with the excited whispers in the room as Dean revealed more and more about the cover-up. As far as Baker was concerned, his president's reputation was being sullied by rumour and gossip and he intended to put a stop to it. When it was his turn to question the young former White House lawyer, he nonchalantly leant back into his chair and uttered the most famous question in the whole investigation. What did the president know and when did he know it? Baker is often thought to have asked this question in an earnest attempt to discover the truth no matter how harmful it would be for his president. In fact, he actually thought he was covering for Nixon. He thought that John Dean would be forced to admit that Nixon hadn't been involved. Instead, John Dean confirmed that President Richard Nixon had not only been aware of the cover-up, he had orchestrated it from the very beginning. Senator Howard Baker had anticipated that his question to Dean would put a stop to the excited chatter that was spreading around the room. But his plan had completely backfired. Even at this stage, Richard Nixon could still have got away with it. The circumstantial evidence was piling up, but nothing could be proven. It was Nixon's word against other people's word. And since he was the president after all, the American people may well have been inclined to side with Nixon. There was no other evidence, no smoking gun. Was there? On the 13th of July, 1973, another White House employee named Alexander Butterfield testified before the Senate committee that Richard Nixon had secretly taped all of his phone conversations and all of his Oval Office conversations since 1971. Those tapes would prove Nixon's guilt or innocence. The fact that Richard Nixon had taped himself is in keeping with the rest of this story in the sense that so many of his troubles were completely of his own making. 
But why had Richard Nixon taped himself? Well, actually, he wasn't the only president to have done so. His old foe, John F. Kennedy, had regularly taped White House conversations during his short presidency. Nixon and Kennedy may have had many differences, but they were both keen students of history and they appreciated that recordings of important conversations would have huge historical value after they had left office. Unfortunately for Richard Nixon, the tapes that he had kept had special value and they would prove to be his downfall. In the week after the existence of the tapes was revealed, Nixon ordered that they be disconnected and he refused to hand them over to investigators. He claimed that the tapes would of course prove his innocence, but he couldn't possibly release them for fear of leaking government secrets or infringing on the privacy of the people he had talked to. But however he tried to justify it, none of this was a good look for him. Richard Nixon's presidency was by now in a death spiral, and 1973 just continued to get worse for him. In October, his vice president, Spiro Agnew, was forced to resign after his corrupt dealings when he was the governor of Maryland were revealed. Congressman Gerald Ford was sworn in as his replacement. Even though Agnew's crimes had nothing to do with Nixon or Watergate, it just added to the sense that the president was running a criminal administration. In that same month, October of 1973, Richard Nixon made his most brazen and most desperate attempt yet to cover his tracks. Remember the special prosecutor his Justice Department was forced to choose? Remember Archibald Cox? Well, Nixon was becoming upset that Cox kept asking for the White House tapes, and since he had been appointed by the Justice Department, he could also be fired by the Justice Department. On the night of Saturday, the 20th of October, 1973, Nixon summoned his Attorney General, Elliot Richardson, to the Oval Office and demanded he do exactly that. Fire Archibald Cox. Richardson was stunned. He had long been an admirer of Nixon's, but he refused to carry out the order and resigned in protest. Nixon then turned to the Deputy Attorney General, William Ruckelshaus, who also resigned his position rather than follow Nixon's request. Nixon finally found someone willing to carry out his orders in the Solicitor General, Robert Bork, but the damage to his credibility was already done. The event became known as the Saturday Night Massacre and it hugely dented any credibility 
Richard Nixon had left. In November, Nixon held a press conference in, of all places, Disneyland in Florida. Naturally, the press pestered him with questions about the Watergate scandal and he infamously responded, quote, The people have got to know whether or not their president is a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I've earned everything I've got. That last sentence, I've earned everything I've got, again reveals how Nixon compares himself favourably to other politicians who had wealthy backgrounds. He remains defiant in the face of what he probably sees as an establishment plot to undermine him. Remember, in Nixon's mind, he hasn't even done anything especially bad. Doesn't everyone play these dirty tricks? It's likely that Nixon thinks he's being targeted by the wealthy elites who he despises so much. Hence his lashing out, his angry assertion that he's earned everything he's got. Aside from the content of what he actually said, several journalists at the press conference noted how awful Nixon looked. He appeared tired, stressed, and he was snapping at journalists with a barely concealed vitriol. Richard Nixon was indeed in a terrible personal state by this point. He was barely sleeping, he was constantly stressed, and he had developed a drinking problem. As 1973 turned to 1974, he was known to drunkenly phone his closest aides and friends to moan about the investigation and confide how he feared for his presidency. Of course, he had every reason to fear for it. In March of 1974, his former top aides, who had resigned the year before, were indicted for their part in the Watergate cover-up and it seemed only a matter of time before the end came for the Nixon presidency. In one final act of desperation, Nixon agreed to hand over heavily edited transcripts of his White House tapes to investigators on the 30th of April. Of course, they were edited in a way that removed any incriminating evidence on him, and the Congressional Committee demanded that he provide them with the full transcripts. The case eventually went all the way to the Supreme Court, and at the beginning of May, the House of Representatives started exploring articles of impeachment. The end finally came over a two and a half week period at the end of July and the beginning of August. On the 24th of July 1974, the Supreme Court ruled that Nixon must hand over his tapes to the investigators. On the 30th of July, articles of impeachment were passed in the House of Representatives. In the first week of August, unedited, 
incriminating transcripts of Nixon's tapes were released and a group of Republican senators visited him in the White House. They informed him that they would no longer support him and that he was likely to be convicted in an impeachment trial in the Senate. Nixon announced his resignation in a televised address to the nation on the evening of Thursday, the 8th of August, 1974. At noon the following day, he climbed aboard Marine One, the presidential helicopter, with his wife, his daughters and his sons-in-law, and he departed the White House for the final time. Nixon had resigned to avoid prosecution in an impeachment trial in the Senate, but there were still a whole host of civil prosecutions that loomed over him even after he left office. These were taken care of when his vice president, Gerald Ford, who had been sworn in as president when Nixon resigned, gave him a full and complete pardon in September of 1974. Nixon remained a public figure. In 1977, he sat down for an enthralling series of interviews with the British broadcaster David Frost. It was in those interviews that he muttered the infamous line, quote, Well, when the president does it, then it is not illegal. Nixon even published a book telling his version of events in 1978, and his public image did receive a little rehabilitation before his death in 1994. But despite that, he is generally remembered as one of America's worst ever presidents. For a man who had worked so hard to get to where he got, that would be an incredibly bitter pill to swallow. There's no doubt that Nixon could occasionally be brilliant. Even if his tactics were sometimes dubious, he really had worked his way up from poverty in rural California all the way to the presidency by his own hard graft. And there were important things that he accomplished during his presidency, most notably the thawing in the US's relationship with China after he became the first US president to visit there. But Nixon's brilliance was accompanied by some fatal flaws. He was a petty man, a man who held grudges and took criticism very personally. He was willing to resort to incredibly dirty political tricks, some of which we haven't even covered on this podcast. He was also delusional, projecting his willingness to resort to dirty tricks onto others, and in doing so, becoming convinced that he had to be even more dirty. And that is what ultimately led to the Watergate scandal. Remember, Nixon was on such a comfortable cruise to re-election in 1972 that there was absolutely no need for him to do what he did. 
But his delusions of Democrat plots and media hit jobs led him to illegal tactics in that election and led him further and further into the cover-up. Way back in 1950, Helen Gahagan Douglas had coined the term Tricky Dicky about her opponent for the Senate seat in California, Richard Nixon. Douglas had more of an idea than others about how accurate that description was. Thanks for tuning in to the first episode of Series 2 of the Ministry of History podcast, which focuses on historical scandals. I promise that over the course of this series, we will look at some other lesser-known scandals, but I just wanted to cover the Watergate scandal because it really does interest me, and I hope it interested you as well. Before we go, I just need to give one reference that I used for this story. It's an article called Howard Baker, The Real Story of His Famous Watergate Question, and it was written by Peter Greer for the Christian Science Monitor.